Well, good morning, everyone. Can you hear me okay? So as Josh said, Clay and Jen are in Atlanta at a conference, and so I have the privilege of speaking to you this morning, and I trust that the Lord will bless you this morning. It was interesting. I had one topic that I really felt in my heart to bring this morning, but Clayton was going to preach on something extremely similar in the very near future, so he begged me not to. So that's all right. I was able to switch gears, so we'll go with God's plan instead of my plan today. So uh, this morning, I'd like to talk to you about one of the topics that is near and dear to me. I like to speak on some of the foundational truths of the Christian faith, because I think all too often we think that everybody understands some of these basic truths, and yet sometimes it's good either to have a refresher if you're a mature believer, or perhaps just kind of get it for the first time. And so, in order to introduce this topic, I'm going to tell you a little story. Back in the 1950s, there was a, uh, a conference in London, and it was about comparative religions from around the world, and different scholars and experts were gathered together, and they got into a little bit of a debate about what made Christianity unique compared to all the other religions in the world. And so, they started pulling out various things that we have in the Christian faith, and the first one is, you know, well, what about incarnation? You know, God becoming flesh. Well, some of the other religions actually have instances where some sort of a God theoretically showed up in human form as well, so that wasn't unique. And then they thought about, well, what about the resurrection? Well, in theory, some of these other religions also talk about people coming back from the dead. Of course, they don't live forever like Jesus, but that's another story. But as they're continuing to hash through it, C.S. Lewis walks into the room and wonders what's going on, and they tell him about the debate they're having. And he said, well, the answer to that is very simple. It's grace. And they thought about it, and they said, you know, that's actually true. You know, they realized that the notion of God's love coming as an absolutely free gift, free of charge, with no performance requirements whatsoever, really kind of goes against every other religion in the world. I mean, if you think about the Buddhists, they had the Eightfold Path. The Jewish faith, they had the Law and the Covenants. The Muslims had the Code of Law. The Hindus have Karma. You know, all these different things that are performance-based. But Christianity is the only religion that dares to claim that God's love is unconditional and that it's a right understanding of grace that will separate Christianity from every other religion in the world. In the 21st century church, we find that there are a number of different views on grace and its doctrine, its role in our lives, and I don't want anyone to think this is going to suddenly become a dry theological discussion of grace. We're not going to do that, or at least I hope not. The textbook definition of grace, this will be the doctrinal part, the textbook definition of grace is God's unmerited favor towards mankind. And the word grace comes from the Greek word charis, which simply means a divine influence on the heart, which brings gratitude. So from even that original meaning of the word for grace, we can see that it has absolutely nothing to do with us. Grace is very much a critical component of our salvation. In the origins of grace, God's plan for our salvation and our redemption was birthed in the death and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Another way of looking at it is actually that grace 
is God's part in the salvation equation. He provides the grace, and we provide a response to that grace. It's a positive response to what he has already done on our behalf. Faith, basically, then, is what appropriates what God has provided for us. Now, when I say that they work together, I hope you're hearing me correctly, because if you're like my wife, who actually isn't here right now, so she's actually on a plane coming back from uh, Ohio right now, which she could be here, I think. But if you're like her, you have a real nose for works mentality, you know, making sure that there's absolutely nothing of works when we talk about God's grace. And so when we talk about faith being our part, that is not a work. That is simply a response to God's grace. One of the most familiar verses in the New Testament is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And they say this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God and not a result of works so that no one may boast. And sometimes we'll read a really familiar scripture like that and we don't even really stop to think about what profound truths are in there. If we say that we're saved by grace through faith, it's not just one, not just the other, it is both. Someone once created an acronym for grace that actually I think is pretty appropriate. If you take the letters of grace, it's God's riches at Christ's expense. And that's really accurate. We have the riches of an eternal relationship of God as a result of him sending his son to atone for our sins on the cross. Following our salvation, grace is the empowering presence of God in our lives that enables us to do things that we never could do on our own. And that, of course, is to live like Jesus. It's an ongoing process that molds and shapes us over time. And even though we know where we're going, and we, as we read the Bible, we see more and more what Jesus is like, and we feel in our hearts we want to be more and more like him. We see the destination. We see where we're going. But it's almost like being the pilot of an airplane that's going from Washington to California. Before you take off, you, you kind of chart your course. You know the direction you're going. But as you're on your way, there's going to be turbulence. There's going to be some storms that come along. And they require some adjustments and course corrections along the way. But in the same way, our understanding of grace changes how we live as we proceed through life and we grow and mature in our faith. Our salvation isn't going to exempt us from these storms of life. I mean, think of Candace and Richard, not that I want to use them as the poster child this morning, but they had no idea a week and a half ago that they would suddenly find themselves in the hospital you know, dealing with uh, their premature birth of their daughter. But yet, I have seen, there's, there's a website that you can actually see some of the postings. God is using this in an amazing way in their lives. He is blessing them. He is bringing them together even closer as a couple. And they are seeing his grace in every step along the way. So, we know that there are going to be storms. But, Grace transcends those storms. Grace is just simply another way of seeing God's unbelievable love being poured out for us in a way that we can't even comprehend. I mean, think of it this way. We love God because we, we know he kind of deserves it. After all, he's our creator, right? And we know we need to love our neighbor. 
because the Bible tells us that we need to love our neighbor. But grace is a demonstration of love that surpasses all of that because he sent his son to die for us in our place. And by doing so, he gave us an ability to spend eternity with him. It's an in inexhaustible supply of kindness and love that we can only scratch the surface of in our humanity. We do everything that we can to grasp it, to apprehend it, to comprehend it, and yet it's just an amazing thing that he wants us to be his children. He calls us children of God. Grace also, as I said, changes us, and we grow, and we suddenly can do things that we never could before. Picking on my wife again, I'm just amazed to see the way the Lord has been using her in the last year or two. For many years, and I know some of you already know this story, Clayton's talked about it to some degree, she was a homeschooling mom, just taking care of the kids, had an absolute deep but simple love for the Lord, but her life was focused on just getting the kids launched. I mean, let's be honest, that's kind of the focus of any mom, right? But then the kids started growing up, they began leaving the nest, going off to college, so she got a part-time job working at a ministry here in Loudoun County. She was a database administrator, just plugging in names, correcting addresses. You know, it was fairly tedious work, but it was something that got her out of the house and started doing something different. But then about a year and a half ago, something amazing happened, and it's been growing ever since. The favor of God began to rest on her, and she suddenly found herself operating in a realm that she had never been in before, an entirely different sphere. Now she meets with high-level government officials, senators, ambassadors, Christian leaders from around the world. God has put her in this position so that she can share his grace with these people, to share his love with people who may not get it any other way. And it's all happened through simply his unmerited favor on her. There's nothing that she did to earn that. There's nothing that she did to deserve it. It was his favor. He chose her and said, I want you to deliver my message of grace to these people. It's funny. Every fiber of our humanity just kind of screams against this whole idea of unmerited favor, doesn't it? It cuts against the grain of our thinking because, let's face it, we place a pretty high value on fairness. What's fair in life, right? So let's consider for a minute the parable of the workers found in Matthew chapter 20. Now we're not really going to turn there, I'm just going to describe the scene. And basically, a landowner, a vineyard owner, who one morning early goes out, hires some workers to work in his vineyard. Then at noon he goes out, hires some more, then at three o'clock, and then right around five o'clock, right before quitting time, he gets still more workers to go work in his vineyard. But shortly thereafter, after he's gotten the five o'clock crowd, he brings everybody back in, and it's time for them to receive their reward. And so he calls up the group that came up at five o'clock first, and he gives them a denarius. Now, you have to understand just how important that denarius really is. A denarius was basically the equivalent of 25 pieces of silver, and it was also said to be the equivalent of the value of 10 donkeys. So I went out on equine.com to look up the value of the average run-of-the-mill donkey these days. Did you know you can get a donkey for about $1,000? What a steal. It's a bargain. I'm telling you, it's a bargain. And so these guys basically got paid $10,000 for less than an hour's work. Can you imagine that? Well, if you can imagine, 
the guys who showed up early in the morning were very excited to see this. After all, when they saw this really generous payout that was given to the guys who had barely shown up, they figured they were in for an amazing payday. Well, much to their surprise, they too received a denarius for their day's labor. They weren't happy. It didn't seem fair. Now admit it, you can kind of relate to the way those guys were feeling, don't you? I know I can. I mean, you know, if I've been sweating in a field all day long, I'd expect to get a little more than the guy who just showed up at the last minute. But you know, that's the problem. This parable was not about economics or equitable compensation for, for a day's work. It was a parable actually about grace. These weren't wages to be earned. Grace was an amazing gift that God gives to all who believe. And whether we believe in Jesus when we're eight years old or 80 years old, we still get the same grace. You know, over the years I've been asked a question every now and then and it goes something like this. So what do I do to get more of God's blessings in my life? I mean, I go to church, I, I pray more lately, I've been reading my Bible more, I'm giving some tithes, you know, but I still don't see God really moving in my life. But in that question lies the root of the problem. Because those folks have fallen into the trap of linking their performance to God's blessings. Now, I don't think that anybody in free life has ever asked me that, but I have been asked that question, and you know, it's important that we understand that principle, that provision is not based on whether we're reading our Bible or we're worshiping more or if we're giving our tithes, but I can tell you that it's the treasure of this church. I'm so thankful that you do. I really am. <laughs> but seriously, good works have nothing to do with it. Before we ever had, any of us had financial needs, God already had made a provision for that. Before we were sick, God made a way for our healing. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live in righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Before you ever became discouraged or depressed, God had stored up in heaven something that would bring you out of that pit of despair. God blessed you with all spiritual blessings. Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God has anticipated, in fact, he's foreseen every difficulty and every need that you could have, and he has met those needs already through Jesus Christ before we were born. And why did he do that? Because you're precious to him. You're precious. He loves you with an everlasting love. When God provided that amazing act of grace nearly 2,000 years ago, when now becomes a reality, when it's activated simply by our faith in him. Our faith appropriates what he's already stored up. We worship a good, good God, don't we? Now, I know that there's some people that go through life picturing God as an angry, omnipotent being who's just waiting to pour out his wrath on them. In fact, my brother is actually like that. He has said many times to me, if God's real, he's just mean and spiteful. There are other people, you know, and to a degree he would be one of them, that he views Father God like that because of the way they view their earthly father. They can't break the connection. They, they see one like the other. Then there are others who are simply wrapped up in the God of the Old Testament. They see him as 
you know, setting up this impossible standard of behavior in the Mosaic law, and then being a little bit angry when the Israelites continually, continually, continually foul up, sometimes in a big way. But even in the middle of the Old Testament, we do catch glimpses of God's grace that's poured out in the New Testament. I love Isaiah chapter 54, where we see a picture of God's frustration with the Israelites, a little flash of anger, but then it's followed by an amazing description of his love and grace. Let's look at that beginning in verse 7. For a brief moment, I deserted you, but with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. My covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. If you feel like God's angry with you, I hope that these verses minister to you this morning. He has compassion on you. He has said that his love will never depart from you. His covenant of peace will never be removed. For me, every time I even read those scriptures, I just feel a sense of calm and peace enter the atmosphere because it is just a reflection of how much he loves us, the grace that he has for us, and it just brings an overwhelming sense of peace. In the New Testament, God's grace is the tangible demonstration of his love, and it's expressed through the favor he shows on his children. As we've said before, it's God's will for everyone to be healed. An example of that is in Acts 10.38, where it says, Jesus went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed by the devil. You know the verse in John 8.38 that says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free? It's not simply truth that sets you free. It's the truth that you know that sets you free. Once you appropriate those truths, once you understand them, then they are available for you and they are life-changing. When you have challenging circumstances, faith will rise up in you and you will see God move on your behalf. He is faithful. He has done it time and time and time again. Whether it's forgiveness, salvation, or even finding a really good parking spot at the mall, his grace, his favor is upon all of his children. There's nothing we can do to earn it. And even better, there's nothing we can do to lose it. Now, some Christian teachers emphasize grace, grace, grace. Others, faith, faith, faith. But I believe it's important to emphasize both. It's kind of like that analogous some of you may have heard about how the Christian walk is kind of like an airplane where one wing is the word and the other is the spirit. And without one, you know, you're just going to whip around in a corner or just, you know, go in circles, spiraling down. It's kind of like that with faith and grace. These are two wings that we need on the, the plane of our Christian walk as well. Without one or the other, it's just not a complete picture. One of the kind of outworkings that you'll see as you begin to embrace grace is it will start to change the way you view life, your personal outlook on life. For those of you who don't know me personally, my default personality setting is pessimism. It really is. I mean, if someone 
were to say, my cup runneth over, probably my first thought would be, well, there's probably gonna be a stain on the carpet, so we better get the carpet cleaner, <laughs> you know? But through grace and, and my understanding of it that is growing and growing, and it's through God's goodness and his constant showing of his grace that I've gotten better. I mean, now, you know, the optimist says that glass is half full and the pessimist says it's half empty, and I just say that the glass needs to be a little smaller. It's the wrong size. Glass is too big. You know, it, I haven't quite gotten all the way over to the glass is half full, but I'm making progress because I understand God's grace and I'm seeing him move in my life and the life of people around me all the time. But I have a lot of compassion for pessimists. I really do. Because I know that there's been something or many things in their lives, probably when they were little, that just didn't go right. Things went well off the tracks, perhaps. And, you know, as a result, it stole their joy. And it robbed their belief that everything will work out in the end. But I'm here to tell you, you don't have to live like that any longer. I'm living proof of that. If you have grace and faith, in God, then he will lift you up beyond these current circumstances that you have that'll give you victory over the struggles you have today and will restore the years that the locust has eaten as you think back on your past. You know, it's really even more amazing than the way he pours out his grace on each one of us. It's that he's made that grace available so that we can share it with others. That's really one of the most amazing things about his grace. We are his chosen vessels to dispense grace and God's favor on those around us. When we go into an office or into a, a building, a, a shop, we bring a little bit of the kingdom with us. There's a shift in the atmosphere when we come in. You know, he doesn't do this just through, you know, great men, women of faith. It's not like it's the Claytons and the Bill Johnsons of the world that are the ones who are dispensing grace wherever they go. It's God's expectation that we will all do that. You know, it's for all of us to dispense grace wherever we go. I'd like to illustrate this with a little analogy that I'm drawing from something that happened uh, quite some time ago, probably just about 100 years ago now. How many of you recognize the name Thomas Edward Lawrence? Probably not many, but maybe. Okay. Well, there is one or two. <laughs> and Thomas Edward Lawrence, you'll recognize him in just a moment. In World War I, he was a British military liaison to the Arab Revolt that was happening against the Turks. And that's where he picked up the nickname Lawrence of Arabia. Should be a little more familiar there. We've, many of us have seen the movie of his exploits. Well, after the war, um, he had made great friendships with a number of the sheikhs in, Arab, in Arabia. And he brought them back to, to London. And they met with the joint uh, session of parliament. They were introduced to the queen. They had an absolutely amazing visit. He just wanted to show off to them what England was like, what his home was like after he'd spent so many years with them in the desert. As their trip was drawing to a close, one evening he said to them, look, I want to give you whatever you'd like, you know, if there's something that you've seen here that really jumps out at you, let me know, and I'll give it to you as my gift. Well, they march upstairs to their hotel room, they open the bathroom door, and they point to the faucet sticking out of the wall from the tub, and they say, we want to bring the faucet back with us because we want to bring water into the desert. 
See, they didn't realize that the faucet was just the conduit. It was just the vessel. But they didn't realize that behind it, behind the wall, was pipes and pumps and reservoirs and water towers. And all these, all the power, all the water was completely invisible to them. All they saw was, turn the spigot, water comes out. It was an amazing thing to them. So in the same way, we are vessels of God's grace. John 7:38 says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I was kind of reminded of your story of the, the aqueducts, Tommy. As you were talking about it, I was thinking, you know, that's almost like God pouring out his water through those aqueducts to, again, bring grace to dry places. It's very cool. I also want to emphasize that although the faucet seemingly is just a conduit, it's still very, very important. You know, without the faucet, there is no access to the water of grace. We're his faucets with the capacity to turn on the spigots and dispense grace wherever we go. And we don't have to be perfect. We don't have to be some 24-karat gold, diamond-encrusted faucet. You know, God works through all kinds of imperfect people. I mean, look at David. He had an affair, and then he even had the poor husband killed just to, to cover it up. Peter was afraid of being identified as being one of Jesus' disciples, and so he denied him three times. Paul was a murderer. So was Moses. Jonah ran from God, and Gideon and Thomas both doubted. But thank goodness God doesn't kick us to the curb whenever we mess up. He doesn't hire and fire us like a boss. He loves us like a dad. He doesn't judge us, and he doesn't hold a grudge. And yet, he wants to use us because that's how he works in the world today, through people like you and me. One of the greatest privileges we have is to be used by God. I'm telling you, there's nothing like that first time, that feeling of God using you to minister to someone else. It is mind-boggling, and I know probably all of you in here have experienced it at one time or another, where God used you to bless somebody else. Maybe you laid hands on them for healing, something truly amazing like that. Or maybe you were just there to help their heart stop hurting from something that had happened, and you told them about God's love, and suddenly everything changed. When you share the gospel and somebody accepts Christ, there is nothing like that feeling in the world. Now, unfortunately, there are times where we choose not to follow God's promptings. We choose not to dispense grace. There's an interesting analogy of this found in 2 Kings chapter 4. And many of you know the story about how the widow came to Elisha and asked him to help because her husband had died, and now the creditors were showing up, and they were going to take away her kids and make them slaves to pay for the family debt. So let's pick up the story in verse 2 when Elisha says to her, so what shall I do for you? Tell me what you have in the house. And she says, well, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. And then he said, go outside and borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. And when the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there isn't another. 
and then the oil stopped flowing. So the only thing that stopped the flow of oil was the lack of a vessel. Now, carrying that forward to people as being the vessels of God's grace, I know in my life, I've heard God's promptings, and I've just flat out said no. Maybe it's because I was afraid. Maybe I was afraid of being embarrassed because it was a crowd and, and maybe being rejected and humiliated, laughed at. There are a lot of different reasons. There are times where some of those are just so etched in my memory that I will never forget them. And it's not because of what I missed out on. It's because the other person missed out on perhaps a blessing at that moment because I wasn't faithful. But there's grace for that too. I'm just going to talk a little bit about the time when Mordecai was speaking to Esther. She was supposed to go before the king, and she was a little bit afraid because she thought if he didn't receive what she was saying, she could be killed. But yet it was a critical time in the history of Israel because had she not talked to the king, there was a very good chance that the Israelites would be killed, all of them. So Mordecai says to her as she was balking, if you keep silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. But who knows whether you have come into this kingdom for such a time as this. In other words, his will in the matter was not going to be thwarted. Just because Esther was a little bit afraid and maybe wasn't sure if she was going to say anything, it's okay. God will work through somebody. His plans are not going to be destroyed. They're not going to be waylaid. We might not be used because we decided to step aside a little bit, but it's okay. He understands, and he forgives us. You know, I can tell you that some of these times that I've stepped aside and said, not today, Lord, he's forgiven me. I know it, and I feel it, and I know he asks me again, talk to this person, share with that person. And you know what? His forgiveness is a reason enough for me to go back and go again and again and again. And when you do, I'm telling you, you will make all the difference in the world in another person's life. So turn with me for a minute to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. This is a really precious passage that gets to the heart of being a minister of God's grace. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So let's break this down for a second. First of all, from this passage, we know that every single one of us in this room has received gifts. This is one of the privileges of being a Christian. We receive gifts. Remember in Acts 1.8 when Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you? Well, that was a reference to these gifts. It's not for chosen few. It wasn't just for the apostles 2,000 years ago. It's not for people that live the holiest life you've ever seen, but it's for everyone. They're unearned. They're like a birthday present. Nobody gets a birthday present and thinks that they owe the person for providing a gift. And unlike a birthday present, though, we actually have the expectation that we're going to give these gifts away. It's almost like we're re-gifting. But not really, since even though you give it away, he refills, he refills more and more. Just as much as you give away, he gives you more. You could say that perhaps the giving away of gifts is an expectation 
or an obligation on our part, because if you read this in the King James Version, you'll see, as ye have received, even so minister. It's pretty direct. It's saying, look, I've given you these gifts. Now, please, go out and minister to the world. I'm using you. I want you to be my chosen vessel to dispense God's grace in the world. Sometimes people will take it in a little bit of a, a wrong way over time. They may be used and used and used, and suddenly they start feeling like, maybe, maybe they have something to do with it, but that's not true. Don't ever think that we have something really to do with it. It's God's grace. He's the one who's doing everything for folks. And the other thing is, don't, don't be too envious of other people's gifts. You know, if you have the gift of encouragement, but you wish you had the gift of prophecy, that's okay. After all, we're told in 1 Corinthians to, you know, aspire to the greater gifts, and that's fine. But don't feel like, like you're second class because you don't, you're not a prophet. That's not the case at all. God gives you the gift that he wanted you to have because he has a special mission for you in the world. And you've just got to figure out what that is. Understanding what your call and your destiny is in life is probably one of the most important things you will ever do once you become a Christian. The last thing I wanted to say about these verses is that we are stewards of God's grace. Now, a steward isn't the absolute owner, but someone who's really just kind of like a responsible administrator or a trustee. So it's really not unlike financial stewardship. Everything we have, every dollar we make, is because God provided it to us. And he provides to us in abundance so that we can be a financial blessing to others. That's the hallmark of financial stewardship. Likewise, we're stewards of the gift of grace. We've been given it to bless others. And the more we give away his grace, the more we're refilled. The more that we are faithful with a little, he will trust us with even more. A couple weeks ago, Clayton preached on Pentecost. And at the, uh, on the day of Pentecost, God poured out his spirit on all flesh. He was filling vessels that day, wasn't he? And what happened after that? 3,000 people were saved. And it didn't stop there, did it? Look at us now, almost 2,000 years later. 2.4 billion Christians around the world. Simply because those who came before us were willing to give away the grace that had been given to them. Now it's our turn. God needs us to be the vessel or the faucet through which he pours out his grace. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. There was more, but I feel like the Lord says, you've said enough. So therefore, let's bring this to a close. We're going to set aside all thoughts of hindrances and things that might not have worked out well. And I'd like our focus to be on increasing the flow of grace in our lives and the lives of those around us. God wants to use us to bring his grace to the world around us, to bring it into spiritually dry places. Much the same way the sheikhs wanted to have water flowing in their homes in the desert. Maybe you're here today, and you haven't experienced God's grace in your life. Maybe you haven't even put your faith in what he did for you nearly 2,000 years ago, and you're feeling something rise up within you, a desire to know Jesus more. If that's you, the ministry team will be up front in a few moments after the service, and they would love to talk to you, to pray with you, and 
just get you on that road to starting your relationship with Jesus. Maybe you have a desire to be used by God more, to be a vessel, to pour out his grace in your home, your workplace, in all the spheres of influence that you have. And if that's you, I'll pray for you in just a moment. And lastly, maybe like me, you've said no now and then. And if that's you, and you want to get back in the game, I want to pray for you as well. Can we all stand? With your heads bowed and your eyes closed before a holy God, we pray. Father God, I thank you for each and every person here. I thank you, Lord, that we are your chosen vessels to dispense your grace to a hurting world that needs to know you, to know your love, your favor on their lives, your redemption. I pray, Lord, that you would quicken our hearts to be responsive to that still small voice that when you call, we will say, here I am, Lord, send me, send me. Lord, I pray that each and every person here this week would have an opportunity to share your grace, your favor in their homes, in their workplaces, in the shops, everywhere they go. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be attentive to your still small voice. Lord, I pray that every person here would have the joy of being used by you. They would experience that joy this week, next week, and the days to come. Lord, I pray that as we are obedient, you will dispense more and more grace. You love us with an everlasting love. There is nothing you want more than for your children to just dispense your grace and to bring more and more people into your kingdom. It is your will that not anyone should perish. So Lord, we thank you that you've chosen to work through us it's an extraordinary privilege. We thank you, Lord, that you love the world so much that you gave your only begotten Son, that whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. We thank you, Lord, for your outpouring of favor on our lives. I pray, Lord, that when we run into the storms of life, the Lord, we will all have that faith rise up within us that says God has got this. He's in control. He will make a way because he is a good, good God. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to just worship you, to fellowship with one another. We thank you for Penelope. We pray, Lord God, that you would heal that little girl. Just Help her lungs to be strong. Any infections would be completely gone in the name of Jesus. We thank you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.